Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's my joke. What washes up on tiny beaches? Microwaves. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download: Culture, Food, and Humor to Fuel Your Party Conversations. You just got a joke from author Tiffany Unique that'll help break the ice. Her book, Land of Love and Drowning, is out now. Later in the show, we'll speak with actor and singer Audra McDonald. She's about to head out on tour after having won her record sixth. Tony Award. She's got a whole cabinet just full of Tony polisher. That's true. And people, get ready, because in a few minutes the band People Get Ready will be here with a party playlist. Boy, if that all sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of an episode that we first aired in July. So cast your mind back to a time when your sweaters were still stowed in the back of the closet, when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Erin McCann. She is assistant news editor at The Guardian. Erin, what story are you going to be talking about this week? I am here to talk about air travel. Air travel. So this is an uplifting story. Obviously. Oh, I didn't mean that as a pun, guys. I meant that as a sarcastic commentary on on modern travel. I only half believe you. But, Aaron, so what's the story? Uh, British Airways has created a happiness blanket to help first-class passengers. What? Uh, a happiness Happiness blanket. blanket. Basically, the passenger wears a headband that is uh, connected via Bluetooth to the blanket, which has tiny fiber optic LEDs embedded in it, in the wool. And it, and it changes color or something, depending on your mood? It's like a mood blanket? Basically, yeah. Uh, blue for happy or unstressed and red for angry. So it reads your temperature? It reads your level of stress based on what's coming through your brain. I... I... Right. I don't know what they're supposed to do with this information once they have it. Like, flight attendants will now actually see that, yes, you are stressed when they are denying you every sort of luxury that you would have had 20 years ago. Yeah. Or the guy next to you gets to see just how angry he makes you by taking the the armrest. Well, this is in first class, though. So, I mean, I guess that's like, have we given the first class passengers enough wine? Can the seats (laughs) recline even flatter? That's right. For economy class, they have happiness cadaver bags. And and you just zip yourself up, turn red, blue. It doesn't matter. It's probably more comfortable than the seats, actually. (laughs) Yeah, good point. So are we going to see these now if we fly British Airways, just to, you know, all blinking blues and reds? No, it's right now it's just a couple of dozen of first-class volunteers who are going to be test subjects. Maybe this actually is a secret initiative for Coach Class customers because they get to see the first-class people looking like fools (laughs) when they walk back into their little (laughs) field-tending pens. Yeah, I may be poor, but at least I don't have to wear that thing. (laughs) That's right. All right, Aaron McCann, thank you so much for the small talk. Thank you. And now time for some cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a Derek, but instead of oil, it erupts booze. All right, and we're going to start with the history. This week back in 1979, a genre of pop music went up in flames. That's right. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Steve Dahl hated disco music. With good reason. He'd been a DJ at a Chicago rock station, but when it switched to a disco format, they fired him. Picked up by a competing station, Dahl launched a vendetta against disco. He urged listeners to join what he called the insane coho lips anti-disco army. He recorded an anti-disco novelty song that was a nationwide hit. 
And then, in 1979, he announced Disco Demolition Night. Between games of a baseball doubleheader at Comiskey Park, he would blow up a crate of disco records. 30,000 people were expected at Comiskey. More like 90,000 showed up. A haze of pot smoke hung in the air as attendees flung disco albums like frisbees. And when Dahl finally blew up the records, the crowd went off too. There are now, I'd say, 10,000 people on that field, Bill, without any question. Look what's happened now. They got the, the batting cage. They're running it around the outfield. Some of these records are being thrown high in the air, and they're going to strike people on top of the head. And that's why I'm a little bit leery up here myself. No one was seriously hurt, but home base was stolen. Literally. The Chicago White Sox had to forfeit the night's second game. That hasn't happened in the American League since. And as for disco, three years later, it had mostly fallen off the charts. So that was the history lesson. Now for a drink to go along with it, I am on the line with Nandini Count of Violet Hour in Chicago, where this disco demolition happened. Nandini, what cocktail did this story inspire you to make? Well, I couldn't help but think I should make a drink that reminded me of a disco inferno, so yes. I have prepared a shot on fire. Okay, well, tell me what's in it and what, what we do with it once we put what's in it in it. <laughs> well, basically, you're going to want a bunch of shot glasses because you don't want to drink alone. Okay. We're going to use Goldschlager, which is an 84-proof cinnamon liquor that has mm. real flakes of gold in it. Yes. So it kind of at least looks like a disco ball. And also kind of like the tacky clothing, the sequin kind of clothing of the 70s. So Totally. So um, I shook up the bottle a little bit just to get most of the flakes of gold towards the top. And um, you're just going to do equal parts Goldschlager and then uh, Del Maguey's Monero Mezcal, which is 98 proof. So Mezcal is kind of like a smokier kind of tequila. Mm-hmm. And a lot of tequilas and Mezcal kind of play off the flavor of cinnamon well. And you'll notice that some of them have cinnamon notes in it. So I mostly used it because of that. I was going to say, because when I think of mezcal, I think of nights around the campfire or just kind of, you know, out out in the desert, sipping quietly, looking at the stars. I don't think of maniacs running around a baseball stadium burning it's records. True. It's true. You know, I picked it because I like mezcal pretty much. Okay. All right. <laughs> so you want to do equal parts mezcal and Goldschlager, and then mm-hmm. using either a long match or a torch, you light it on fire. <laughs> then you, this is the fun part too. So once you get the flame going on your shots, sprinkle cinnamon on it, and it sparkles Whoa. like a sparkler because cinnamon ignites really? in fire. Yeah. You blow it out, and then you shoot it. And then your life gets demolished a little bit. And then you smash the glass. All right. Did you hear that? If you want to go to Violet Hour in Chicago, you're welcome to smash the glass, (laughs) overturn chairs. I'm sure they would love that. So, Rico, Nandini does have a name for that. I guess, cocktail? Yeah. Is a flaming shot a cocktail, technically? I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe a Molotov cocktail or something? Definitely that. Yeah. Anyway, she calls it God Save the Dancing Queen, Uh, combining the titles of a disco tune and a punk tune because both were popular at the time. That's nice. And actually, really, if you think about it, Disco Demolition Night combined disco records with slam dancing. There you go. It was the first mashup. That's right. With fire. (laughs) People, you can remix our drinks. Recipes are on the website, dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've made some small talk, had a cocktail. Now it's time for some music to play. And here with suggestions are Stephen Recker and James Rickman of the band People Get Ready. 
They're known as much for their kinetic live performances as for their arty indie rock. Their second album, Physiques, just came out last week. Here they are with the Dinner Party soundtrack. Hey, I'm Steven. And I'm James. And we are People Get Ready. Steven actually hosts a fair amount of dinner parties at his apartment, and they always turn into dance parties. They do. But they're nothing like the dance that we do in our shows. More like Cindy Lauper and less like strapping a guitar to your back and dragging it around to a cacophonous din of feedback. <laughs> for the first song for our dinner party, uh, I picked uh, Takeshi Terauchi. The name of the song is uh, Tsukaru Jongarabushi. It's uh, this amazing Japanese guitarist from the 60s who just rips it. He has this uh, guitar style that I've completely tried to emulate since I've heard it. Uh, It's just wild and frenetic and just plays so hard. I was working at a bar and some DJ put one of his tracks on and I just had to stop working and just be like, what in the world is this? This is blowing my mind. It just makes you want to drink. (laughs) So I thought, might as well start a dinner party with a few drinks, a little bit of wild guitar work and go from there. For the next track, I would like to draw from one of many, many records I stole from my parents growing up. It's a Tom Waits Crystal Gale duet called Pickin' Up After You. It's the soundtrack to the movie One From The Heart. It's a Coppola movie that I've never heard of outside of having this one record. Here comes a bride And there goes a groove And it's all these boozy, silly love duets and picking up after you. Tom Waits says, tell me, how long have you been combing your hair with a wrench? How long have you been combing your hair with a wrench? The roses are dead and the violets are too. Crystal Gale, that totally pristine voice. Tom Waits rasping, honking away. I don't know, very different universes, and yet there they are. It totally works. Something magical about it. I won't tell you again You don't defrost the icebox With a ballpoint pen It's really better for uh, a dinner party, not so much when you're canoodling with your baby. That's a whole nother podcast that I hope you guys start Canoodling with your baby. Yeah. (laughs) Pick it up after you. The next track I chose is A Great Design by uh, Black Marble, which is a Brooklyn band. For me, it's kind of a late night jammer. I work at a bar and often put this record on for closing. Kind of 
kind of feels like a little sexy, synthy, a little dark. It's great. If we were to pick a song off our new album, Physiques, to play at this dinner party, Hot Fruit would be our dessert course. explained hot fruit as if um, you went to the beach and Philip Glass was like hey let's play frisbee and then you played frisbee with Philip Glass party soundtrack courtesy of Steven Recker and James Rickman of the band People Get Ready. Their new album is called Physiques. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but stick around. Later, we're going to speak to multiple Tony winner Audra McDonald. And in a few minutes, etiquette advice from Thomas Jefferson, kind of. All that and more when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. We should let you know that this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired a couple months back on July 4th. It's a great episode. Later, Tony-winning performer Andre McDonald talks about balloons and Billie Holiday. And in a few minutes, I taste haggis pie. Yum. Yum exclamation point, actually. But Mm. right now, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week, listeners send us questions about how to behave. And for our Independence Day episode, we decided to have those questions answered by humanities scholar Clay Jenkinson. All right. He hosts the public radio show, The Thomas Jefferson Hour, during which each week he becomes Thomas Jefferson and expounds on life and issues of the day. I introduced him like this. Clay, welcome back to our show. Yeah, I not only become Jefferson, I am Thomas Jefferson, the third <laughs> president are? of the United States, with a voice that he never had. That's right, <laughs> with a North Dakota accent. Well, well, a little North Dakota accent. I tr- I've spent all my life trying to get over it. But you know what? Sadly, now we need to say goodbye to Clay and welcome President Thomas Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Wow, there you are. There, there you are. It's an honor, as always, to have you with us, Mr. President. It's a pleasure it to be with you on the 4th of July. Well, first of all, pardon us for bringing it up, but you died on the 4th of July. Yeah. Does that leave you with mixed feelings about celebrating the holiday? <laughs> no, I didn't. I wasn't bothered by the advent of death. I lived for 83 years, which is a long time. And to you know, if you're going to have to die, which I believe everyone does, well, to die hmm. on the 50th anniversary of what became the most important document in the history of human liberty, yeah. is not bad. Yeah, that's true. How did how did you celebrate the Fourth of July? Did you? I only celebrated two holidays: not Christmas, not Easter, not my birthday. I celebrated Mm. New Year's Day and always had a reception during my eight years as president at what became the White House. And I celebrated the 4th of July because it's the birth of the world's first experiment in self-government, the flame that has burned away all of the corruptions and despotisms of the world. (laughs) At last, and that's why we're living in total paradise now. (laughs) Well, you could be if you were Jeffersonian, but you've strayed into Mr. Hamilton's world. Interesting point. Let's not go there. Our our audience will be deeply divided. I I have a question for you, though. How 
how did you die on the 4th of July? Was it a barbecue incident or? You know, when you lift the Weber grill too soon (laughs) and it singes your red wig. No, I I died of prostate (laughs) cancer and a urinary tract infection. So I was really in the process Mm. of dying for about seven months before that. And I actually tried to hang on until the great birthday of our nation. All right. right. That's excellent of you. Uh, One quick question. The World Cup is heating up. Alas, the United States was eliminated. Are you upset? Do you follow soccer? No, I regard games that involve violence and a ball as not conducive to character building. (laughs) I knew you were going to say something like that. Really? I mean, I've become a caricature of myself over, over time. All right, let's go to our first question. You ready for these? Certainly. All right, Gail who wrote us via Twitter, where she wrote from will be obvious from her question. Gail writes, what is the best way to celebrate the 4th of July whilst residing in Yorkshire, England, Hmm. the country from which we achieved independence? I think uh, the best way to celebrate would be to immigrate to the United States, (laughs) to leave the tyranny of of a monarchical society on a tiny island whose resources have long since been exploited and come to the land of freedom and disengage yourself from the pathetic nature of the British character. You know, I said to Abigail Adams once that the British cannot be reformed in their parliament. It's in their gastronomic tract. Oh, my. The sheer quantity of animal (laughs) flesh that the Brits eat renders them insusceptible of civilization. Were you a vegetarian? I was a quasi-vegetarian. I did eat meat, but I I said, let it serve as sauce to my vegetables and not the other way around. I see. I was going to say, because vegetarians in history have also done some pretty bad stuff since you've left, Mr. President. (laughs) No, I I did it for health reasons, not for ideological ones. By the way, I should point out, Gail, I believe, is Californian, Exciting in come England. home. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, That's how you can celebrate, Gail. Just book a plane ticket. Enjoy. We'll welcome you back. Uh, here's something from Tracy via our website. Tracy writes, what would you do if a friend brought a guest to your dinner and you absolutely, and I mean absolutely hated this person? <laughs> Well, this happened all the time. You know, as as president, I brought in 10 or 12 people three or four afternoons a week to the round tables of the White House, and they were frequently Federalists who hated me. I didn't really hate them. I tried not to hate anybody, but I found them disagreeable. But I Mm -hmm. tried to charm them with good wine. You know, I sometimes serve seven Uh or eight French wines, exquisite French cuisine, and what I called artificial good humor. You know, the best people are born with good humor, but the rest of us have to adopt the habit of good humor. And if you do, if you are always civil, no matter what the provocation, you will improve your daily life and your own happiness, and you will, in a certain way, shame those around you to be more civil. And a half dozen bottles of wine doesn't hurt. It never hurts, but uh, but buy Bordeaux if you if you have the wherewithal. Buy Chateau Yquem. <laughs> I'm interested in, actually, your uh, interest in French cuisine. What did, what did you think of the whole Freedom Fries incident that happened a few years ago? <laughs> well, there's, there's no end to American demagoguery. I actually brought French fries from France to the United States and served them sometimes. Of course, of course you, you did. did. But <laughs> I don't think that it's in our interest ever to turn our back on our principal ally, France. You know, I said in my lifetime, every man's first country must be his own, but every rational man's second country must be France. Wow. <laughs> you were a Francophile. I spoke French fluently. I knew uh, French um, philosophes. I spent five years in Paris, and I said, you could spend your entire life in Paris and never hear a single rude remark, <laughs> if, if you know French. Did you also chain smoke and um... yeah, wear a beret? I never I never smoked in the whole course of my life. I grew tobacco, but I said that it was a, a really insane crop because it produces no nutrition 
and it's a noxious weed, that's but great. I was addicted to it as a cash crop. Oh, mm. And no beret, of course. I think uh, that sort of affectation appeared in the 19th century. But it would. Right. But I could see a beret on a powdered wig. That would be a kind of yeah. cool look. <laughs> yeah. uh, our next question comes from Lucy in West Lafayette, Indiana. Lucy writes, after working out, is it ever okay to go out to dinner while still in your gym clothes? It always seemed a bit too casual to me. I think she's answered her own question. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, First so. of all, if you really are an agrarian society, nobody will need to work out. You know, artificially working out is a sign of the urban decadence uh-huh. of your era. But any woman who would appear in her sweats, as you like to say, oh my. <laughs> uh, we would regard as a slattern. And if this woman wants to know the conviviality of polite company, mm-hmm. she will always change her clothes and tidy up her hair before she appears before men. Uh, I see. Yeah. Well, turnabout is fair play here, though. What if it was a, a gentleman? Is a gentleman allowed to go out in the equivalent of gym clothes of your time? It would be less inappropriate, but we all need to bring our best self to every situation if we want to be a republic. Otherwise, we will slip into de- deplorable barbarism. <laughs> well, Mr. President, you always have an invitation to our dinner table. Oh, yes. Thank you so much for coming by and telling our audience how to behave. And on the 4th of July, no beer. Wine. Ah. What about the champagne of beers? Is that okay? Uh, (laughs) That is an oxymoron. Humanity scholar Clay Jenkinson, he is host of the public radio show The Thomas Jefferson Hour, during which each week he becomes President Thomas Jefferson. You can also find the show people on iTunes and jeffersonhour.com. And if you've got etiquette questions for us, living mere mortals, send them. You can go to dinnerpartydownload.org and hit contact. And now, time to eavesdrop. Writer Jake Tuck's humor pieces have been featured in online journals Split Cider and The All. Today we overhear him read his latest piece about a matter of immense importance, a missing CD. Hi, my name's Jake Tuck. I'm going to read a piece uh, from McSweeney's Internet Tendency called Our Band Only Sold One Copy of Our Album and We'd Like It Back. In the late 1980s, our band recorded an album for a now-defunct record label. We only sold one copy. This wasn't a marketing stunt. The option existed for more people to buy the album, they just didn't. The rest of the initial pressing, the only pressing, and the master tapes were lost in a fire. We want the album back from whoever bought it because we're planning a reunion show and we've forgotten a lot of the songs. Plus, we'd like to play it for our children who don't believe it's possible that we were once in a band. Part of the reason we only sold one album was that by the time the album was actually pressed, our label had gone belly up. We had to sell the album ourselves on tour, which didn't go so well. We played only one show, which was cut short when our auxiliary drummer got in a fistfight with our trombonist. Our front man tried to intervene and was brained with a clave. Later on, we were told by our merch guy that someone bought one of the albums before the melee erupted. We don't know who this person is. Whoever you are, we want our album back. We wouldn't be making this request if the unsold albums and the master tapes weren't in a storage facility that was burned down in order to destroy evidence of an unlicensed ferret farm housed there. The arsonist moved the ferrets beforehand, but not the albums or the master tapes. So our only hope is the one album we sold. We'll give it back. We just need to copy it first.
We realized that whoever bought the album might have sold it in turn, or let someone borrow it who never returned it, or only bought it in the first place to do cocaine off it. It also might be difficult to identify. Originally, the label didn't print enough covers for the album, and even those covers didn't have the band's name on them. That was a very post-punk thing to do at the time. So only some of the albums had the original art, which is just a picture of a baboon. Then, while we were hand-making the art for the remainder of the copies, we changed our name, at least twice. So it might say we were called Gargantua, or David Levine and the Cossacks, or the Pet Rocks. There may have been other names, but we don't remember. Actually, the best way to identify the album is probably just listening to it. We're pretty sure there's a trombone solo in it. The fourth song is an instrumental freakout that is basically unlistenable. Again, post-punk. We've got nothing on track five. Tracks six through nine comprise a movement concerning an unjust proxy war somewhere in Latin America. Or Asia. We don't remember which war it was, but it was one that we were against. Needless to say, there's lots of clave in those tracks. We understand that the album may have been thrown out, lost, or destroyed. The entire discography of Gargantua slash David Levine and the Cossacks slash the Pet Rocks might be gone forever. Hopefully this isn't true, because it would force us to write new songs. We really don't want to do that. It was hard enough the first time. Jake Tuck reading his piece, Our band only sold one copy of our album and we'd like it back. It was edited for time, but the whole thing's on McSweeney's internet tendency. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media, where we store back episodes of our show in flame-proof pajamas. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a party, the food. And Brendan, this week, officials from the British and American governments met to discuss, among other things, haggis. Yeah. Uh-huh. So Iraq is all figured out then. Well, no. <laughs> nice work. These were agriculture officials. Oh. Uh, you see, the national dish of Scotland, haggis, which is basically sheep innards boiled in a stomach, is banned in the United States, and the UK's environment secretary wants the ban lifted. Okay. So yeah. other than the fact that it's a nightmare inducer, <laughs> why is it banned? That is interestingly a question that I posed to Sylvia Delgado. She is sous chef at Tamashanta restaurant in LA, which one week a year serves an almost authentic haggis Mm. and has a different variation of it on their daily menu. First though, I asked what's in the real thing. It is traditionally made from sheep heart, liver, and lungs, which is ground. It's combined with onions, oatmeal, and some spices, and then it's stuffed inside the lining of a sheep's stomach and boiled. Now, I don't want to be culturally insensitive. (laughs) And we have a lot of listeners, actually, in the United Kingdom. But to the American palate, I just have to say, it doesn't sound like a party in my mouth. First of all, where did this come from, this recipe? How did it develop? Well, much like many Central European foods and foods that have a longstanding history, it came sheerly out of necessity. During some of the famines that happened in Europe in the 1700s, there was a necessity to feed large groups of people with very limited cooking equipment and very limited food. Um, There are several versions of history. Um, One says that it was hunters who would allow the 
the people who were butchering their meat to take home the innards, kind of their keep for their work for the day. And of course, they didn't get the the sort of main cuts. Right, exactly. They're not taking home the the butts or the flank or anything like that. They're taking home the lungs and the livers and things of that nature. And sheep being the most readily available game in Scotland, um, it made a lot of sense to make this dish out of it. So in a way, it's kind of a peasant dish. How did it become kind of a national dish eaten by all classes in Scotland. So Robert Burns uh, was a national poet of Scotland and he gave tribute to the dish. He refers to it as the chief of all pudding in the beginning of his poem. Pudding uh, obviously is a European word that refers to many different types of foods, specifically, you know, shared foods. So by calling it the chief of all puddings, it kind of staked its claim. It made it respectable. And you actually uh, celebrate that poem every year here by serving haggis. His birthday is actually January 25th. We um, commemorate that where we perform his poem for the audience. So it's a dinner show event. And of course, we serve that traditional haggis. Although ours is not made from sheep, it's about as close as you can get here in the United States, given the ban. Now, you bring that up, that there is a ban. Why specifically is it banned? I understand it has something to do with the sheep lung. Is that right? Correct. In 1989, I believe, there was a ban put in place by the United States government against sheep lung due to an outbreak of mad cow disease. Due to that fact, we're not using sheep, we're using cow. We take cow, liver, heart, lung, dice it up, mix it with the oats, and stuff it inside of a cow lining. Now, that's the version that you cook for Burns' birthday, but the version that you have daily on the menu is different, correct? Yeah. Our, what we've done is we've taken about 90% ground beef with about 10% liver so that you still get that little bit of a twinge from the iron flavor, and it's still kind of the nostalgic flavor profile that you would get from a traditional haggis. A little gamey. And then instead of stuffing it inside of a stomach lining, we've actually turned it into almost like a hand pie. We make a very flaky, handmade pie crust here in-house, stuff it, bake it off. But it's got to, I mean, I can hear right now Scottish folk listening to this and being like, you you put it in a pie? That is, it starts, a pie is not a stomach. It's not. But again, you know, palates kind of change as well. Um, I don't know that many of the Scots that come in here would be able to put down a bowl of a traditional haggis, to be perfectly honest with you. Really? Do you find, uh, when you do the more traditional haggis on Burns Night, though, my understanding is that you have an insane amount of people coming in. We do. We have an insane amount of people because it's the one time that you can try this dish there's no there's I don't know of anywhere else in California where you can have a real haggis so for people like I said who want to pay tribute to their country to their history and all of that they come in and do it but again it's out of duty it's yeah I think part of it is out of duty Um, I'd say half of the people that come in truly enjoy the dish as it is prepared traditionally Um, but those are the same people who when we found out we were putting a modernized version of a haggis on our menu now come in and ask for it and are very excited about it. Yeah. All right, can I try this thing? Definitely. Let me go grab them for you. All right. Our version of the haggis. Oh, man, it smells delicious. And it comes with a, the knife buried in the thing. Is there a reason for that? Yes. So normally when you uh, serve a haggis, it's a big, round, sausage-looking entity, and you take a knife and you cut right across the top and open it up. In the poem, Robert Burns talks about the slaying of the haggis, and they literally stab it with a knife and slay the haggis. So in a, He meant it <laughs> metaphorically, I guess, because yes. you got basically a big belly that you're slicing open, I guess. Exactly. All right. I'm going to take a bite of this thing. I took the knife out. Here we go. Hmm. 
Oh, it's really delicious and buttery. The inside is almost like a pate. Does that? Yes. I mean, well, essentially that's what it is, right? You're grinding all of these meats together so it takes on the consistency of almost like a sausage or a pate per se. Yeah, I really like it. Do you sell a lot of these things? 10 or 15 of them a night as an appetizer and we sell them for lunch as well. Let me tell you, nothing like that with a good glass of Guinness or uh, another nice strong beer makes a great lunch. So, Brendan, a couple of things. First of all, we are playing Auld Lang Syne right now because Burns, the national poet of Scotland, wrote the lyrics for this song. And second of all, I know I got off light in this segment. Yeah, I wanted to hear you gag on entrails, <laughs> and instead you got a tasty pie. But uh, I, here's the deal. If listeners write in and demand that I eat real haggis, I promise that the day it becomes legal to serve in America, I will try some. All right. Well, all right? I am lobbying Congress as soon as this episode is over. Oh, no. Meanwhile, everyone, we're going to take a break, but stick around. We've got Tony winner Audrey McDonald when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, public radio's arts and leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Want to let you know this is an encore broadcast of an episode that first aired back on the 4th of July. So kind of appropriate. We would re-air it between a national election and Veterans Day. Coming up, we learn that Chilean sea bass is neither Chilean nor bass. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it's actor and singer Audra McDonald. For four seasons, she starred in the ABC drama Private Practice. She has two Grammys and, in fact, is heading out on a singing tour starting December 2nd. All right. But most notably, she's won six Tony Awards, more than anyone ever. Her latest was for her starring role in Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill. And when I spoke to her this summer, that's what we talked about. In the show, she plays Billie Holiday, performing in a rundown bar in one of the last performances of her life. Here's Audra as Billy singing When a Woman Loves a Man. Maybe he's not much, just another man doing what he can. But what does she care when a woman loves a man? She'll just string along all through thick and thin till his ship comes in. It's always that way. When a woman loves a man, she'll be the first one to praise him when he's going strong. You are a classically trained soprano, and in this role, you have to become a jazz singer. You have to become Billie Holiday. You have to become an old Billie Holiday, and you have to become a tipsy Billie Holiday. How did you arrive at that voice? Well... I don't know that I want to say that I have to become an old Billie Holiday because Billie Holiday is my age. <laughs> That's right. So she was in her only mid-40s at that point. Yes, she was 43 at the time of this concert. She would turn 44 the next month and would die three months after that. You forced me to say your age. I had to break a cardinal rule of dinner parties. Please, everybody knows my age. I wish I could go back, but I can't. Everybody already knows it. The Times printed it years ago. So, um, But in arriving at her sound at this particular point in her life, I, I um, had to listen to her on a nightly basis, and I still do, and in trying to figure out how to approximate her speaking and her singing voice, um, I found it useful to go through, once I'd heard a, a recording of her in her later days speaking, I, I, to go through the voice of my grandmother, which I used to sort of imitate a lot, and my grandmother and Billie Holiday had, had a very similar speaking voice. Um, my grandmother was not an alcoholic or anything like that. Um, as far as the tipsy part of being Billie Holiday, most people who are drunk 
the last thing they want you to know is that they are drunk or that they are on drugs. So actually, I think one of the keys to playing a tipsy person is trying to convince everybody around you that you've, you've got it together. And I think that's actually one of the biggest keys is, is she, she's trying to convince the audience she has it together until she doesn't. <laughs> it's a magnificent feat. Uh, but the other element to this is you are a performer in 2014 and you still want to deliver a great performance and you're able to get across the pathos of Billie Holiday at this moment in her life. Yet you still, I, I wonder if you're completing the songs in a way that maybe she wasn't able to. And so how, how do you balance mimicking where exactly where she was and interpreting it for this production? Well, I I'm really uh, haven't tried to, I've, I've only tried to approximate her voice. I don't think anybody could absolutely, you know, mimic her perfectly. Or maybe there are some people who can you know, I try to find the essence of her voice, but what's most important is what she's trying to do, and that she's trying to give her side of the story, and she's trying to get the audience to listen to her with their own ears and not believe everything they've read and heard about her, but be in this moment so she can give what she feels is her best performance and the truth about her life. Um, so it's almost as if she's defending herself. She's up there defending herself, a little bit on trial. I say I can. And I mean forever If I have to Hold up the sky Crazy he calls me Sure I'm crazy Crazy in love A quick question about your voice. One of the interesting parts of this play is when she talks about how her voice is kind of a synthesis of Louis Armstrong and Bessie Smith. I wonder if for you, I know you've, you've been trained at, you trained at Juilliard and everything, but are there influences you can pinpoint that kind of helped you arrive at your voice when you're not in this production? Well, absolutely. I mean, I know there are certain people that I was obsessed with growing up, Judy Garland and, and Barbara Streisand, uh, Lilius White, uh, Patti Lapone. There was a lot of Lena Horne that was played in my house, too. And I was absolutely obsessed with all those people. And I think how I arrived at my own sound was realizing that I could not imitate them. And the more I tried, the worse I failed. And so I think what ended up occurring is I, I realized I, I, I can sing these songs, but i got to sing them with my own voice. Well, your voice has garnered you so many awards, and it's universally acknowledged that it's a pretty special voice. How do you maintain your voice. For example, I know that you limit the amount of interviews you give. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head for singers. One of the main things is not talking a lot. <laughs> so, Thank you for making this exception. <laughs> not to badger you in any way, but anytime we do any extra speaking outside of the show, uh, especially a show like this where it's just me singing and, and, and speaking, that's voice going out of the bank. Do you know what I mean? That's a withdrawal. That's a withdrawal. That's a withdrawal. And so we're and so deposits for us are vocal rest and hydration and sleep. Those are the things that are that give us the most strength, you know. And so um, aside from trying to be as quiet as we possibly can, there's all those other things. And voice lessons, lots of voice lessons. Still? Absolutely. Absolutely and always. I had one three days ago. All right. Well, I'm going to jump right to our two-center questions so we don't drain the bank anymore. The first one is, uh, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? I think the question I am tired of being asked in interviews 
And this, I, this, I feel guilty saying this. Everyone does it for us. It's, okay. it's, All right. The, the question is, um, when did you first figure out that you could sing? Because I, I get bored of my answer. I know my answer, but I get bored of it. Well, I don't know your answer. Oh, no. <laughs> is that how you trick people? Yeah, exactly. Oh, you're terrible. Okay. The, the, the way I figured out I could sing is it's just something that I was doing all the time in our church choir and um, I used to embarrass my dad because I would sing so loud in the church choir that you know I would sort of be heard over everybody else and and then one day after church my dad and my mom started matching pitches with me um, at home and looking at each other and talking in a funny way. All right I'm not going to ask you to drain the bank anymore to tell me that story. Our next question is tell us something we don't know and this can be um, an interesting personal fact or it could just be an interesting piece of trivia about the world. Um, I wish I had more trivia about the world, but maybe something that people don't know about me is I'm scared to death of balloons. Of balloons? They scare me to death. What about balloons? Just they're creepy, the sound, the bad memory? I know, I'm afraid of them popping in my face, and I think, I think some balloons must have popped in my face as a child or something, but they scare me to death. <laughs> so even though you have a fa children, you will stay away from balloon games at parties well, and stuff? You know, I've had to blow up balloons at my kids' parties, and I am, I am horrified as I'm doing it and terrified. I, I squint and, with everyone, or someone blows it up too big in front of me. I'm like, that's, that's enough, that's enough, for my kids especially. When, when they if you inhaled a balloon, the helium, that would be a crazy voice. Audrey McDonald on helium. <laughs> Maybe that's how I'll do Billie Holiday. Ooh, what a little moonlight can do. Audrey McDonald channeling Billie Holiday in Lady Day at Emerson Barn Grill. The show recently wrapped up on Broadway. Audra launches a singing tour December 2nd in Los Angeles. And if you can't catch her live, you can always go to our website and just listen to that interview over and over again. I do. Our address is dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time for Chattering Class, when we are schooled by an expert in some party-worthy topic. The topic this week, scams, myths, and misinformation you probably believe are 100% fact. And our teachers are Alex Mayasi and Zach Crockett, two authors of the new book, Everything is BS, except their title doesn't use the abbreviation. They write for Priceonomics, a San Francisco company that writes about business data. Hello, Alex. Hello. Thanks for having me. And hi, Zach. Thanks for having me, man. No problem. And if I had to sum it up, I would say the book is about economic ideas or businesses that we take for granted as legitimate. But on closer examination, maybe aren't so much. I think so. The book is based on the premise that... We're surrounded by misinformation everywhere, and uh, our job at Priceonomics is to clarify some of this misinformation and uh, back it with data and facts. <laughs> data and facts? <laughs> they take all the magic out of things. <laughs> the book starts actually by saying the diamond business is BS. Why start the whole book with diamonds? Why are they kind of the poster child of scams? The reason uh, diamonds really starts off the book is to set the tone because it is such a poster child, as you say. I think most of us assume that diamond engagement rings are this timeless tradition that stretches back for generations when, in fact, diamond engagement rings were a tradition that you could say were dying, weren't doing that well, except the company with a monopoly over diamonds decided to create this great tradition of giving diamond engagement rings and equating a 
a big diamond engagement ring with, you know, the amount of love you are expressing and your, your self-worth as a man. All right. So, so details. First of all, what company was that? We're talking about De Beers, um, which is a massive diamond conglomerate. And really, uh, they were the masterminds behind the whole branding of the diamond, the whole two-month salary myth. That um, meaning that people should spend two months' salary to buy a diamond ring for their potential betrothed. Exactly. Uh, these these recommendations were all set by De Beers and uh, marketing executives. And th- this is what year? It's about um, the time of the Great Depression. There were other reasons for the decline of diamonds, and then you add the Great Depression into the mix, and they're they're really struggling. You know, how do you figure out people who have less and less money to spend money on something that has very little value? Yeah, and actually, that was something that surprised me reading about is that diamonds really aren't always as scarce as the diamond industry would maybe have you believe. Uh, That's correct. One example would be in 1902 in South Africa, a deposit of diamonds was discovered, and this deposit was so large, it constituted more than De Beers' entire holdings at the time. (laughs) So what De Beers did is try to coax this uh, mine owner into relinquishing his discovery. He initially disagreed, but a few years later joined this syndicate. And once these diamonds were in the possession of De Beers, they would release them over a very slow period of time to give off the illusion that they were still scarce. Yeah, I would add that, you know, the owner of this new mine that was discovered in 1902, who initially resisted joining the the De Beers cartel, one reason he was won over is because, he said in his own words, common sense tells us that the only way to increase the value of diamonds is to make them scarce, that is to reduce production. Wow. So, you know, it was very much, they saw the logic of this. We have to make diamonds scarce by, you know, being part of this monopoly. All right. So let's move on to something more apropos for a dinner party theme show. Chilean sea bass. <laughs> you bring up later in the book. Why, sure. why is that BS? Chilean sea bass is just a great example of how marketing can turn a food that no one would consider appetizing into the absolute toast of the town. The Chilean sea bass is a complete misnomer. It's not a bass. It's a type of cod. But the first guy who saw it thought it looked like a bass. And he knew that bass was popular in the United States. So he thought that would help create a market for this fish that no one really recognized. Yeah. And and if you actually saw this thing, it's like one of the ugliest fish (laughs) um, known to mankind. It's pretty ugly. It's called the Arctic toothfish. Does it actually have like tooth? I just imagine teeth shooting out from every part of its body. Is that right? Well, not exactly, but it's... (laughs) Zach's certainly correct that it's an ugly fish. Um, and if, you know, if someone served it with the entire fish just staring at you at the dinner table, you might uh, pass. You might not think it should be the Bon Appetit, you know, dish of the year. Which it was. It went from, you know, being unknown and used mainly in fish sticks to being <laughs> this high-end food item in the space of a few years. Sure. And then, you know, in terms of where did he get the name Chilean sea bass, you know, he started with something like the South American bass. But he thought, you know, of course, if you want to mouth-watering fish, a luxury product, you want something with some specificity, the same way that you want to know that your shoes were made in a tiny little town, quaint place in Italy. And so he came up with the Chilean sea bass because that's the port where he originally found the fish. Although that's not actually where you're most likely to find the Antarctic toothfish. Sure. So I can imagine coming away from this book feeling a little helpless, you know, like a lot of money is spent on PR campaigns to spread information that might be misinformation. How do we puncture that veil? It is tough. You see all the all the money that's being spent to manipulate us. I think what can help people get past the BS is to have just a really curious attitude and be aware that the story they're being told might not be the right one. 
I think the reason both Zach and I really enjoy our jobs is that all we do is we think about interesting things that we think would be worth digging into because there might be something unexpected there. If you go about life with this natural curiosity about what's at work behind these assumptions you hold, you know, you'll be much less susceptible to trickery. And I think you'll be entertained in the process and maybe even have something to say at a dinner party. Alex Mayasi and Zach Crockett, two of the authors of the new book, Everything is BS, The Greatest Scams on Earth Revealed. All right, here's the problem, Rico. All right. How do we know they're telling the truth about these scams? That's a good, that's a good point. We don't. Right? So uh, we have to fact check their stuff, and then we got to fact check the fact checkers. Okay. All right? And then we just keep doing that until we die <laughs> confused. <laughs> that's journalism, basically. That's our job. And folks, that concludes this Encore broadcast of the Dinner Party download for this week. But never fear, we're available all week long on Twitter and on Instagram. Our handle there is Dinner Party DNLD. You can also find out more about us and about Infinite Guest, the podcast network to which we belong, at infiniteguest.org. Jackson Musker is associate producer of the Dinner Party download. Brittany Martin is our digital assistant. Our interns are Ed Morales and Christiana Cabal. Ravi Carmen engineered this week. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. And and now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to enjoy on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. The band known as Spoon is back on tour now, their first since 2010. I actually caught them recently, and their live show is well worth the ticket price. Here's the single from their latest album, They Want My Soul. It's called Do You. We do. Bon appetit. I was For attending the dinner party download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks so much for listening. See you. Uh, guys, that actually is scary. Shut up. Jerk.